0: This nature wearing thin. I can't see you begin What really do I see when I step back at me ask our sick time
1: Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Rohati Nagasar. Rohati is a writer, entrepreneur, nonprofit developer, pastor, and the author of the recent book, When We Belong Reclaiming Christianity on the Margins. Also, musically featured throughout this episode is Dogwood. Dogwood was a punk band from California. You can get connected with Rahadi and Dogwood and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of a people's theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology.
0: uh,
1: Today I have Rohadi Nagasar with me. So, uh, Rohati, you are a writer and a nonprofit developer and a pastor, and uh, you're also a Canadian. Uh, I don't know (laughs) if I interview too many Canadians. There's been a few of you all, but not too many. Uh, So you have a lot of things going on in the world. You're also a podcaster. Uh, You've got all the things. Uh, So, But with all of that said, who is Rohati Nagasar to Rohati Nagasar?
0: Uh, Depends on the day. Ooh, um, first off thanks for inviting me into your space yeah um, sometimes yeah depending what space i'm in will dictate what hat i wear so i i'm not wearing a hat today i don't know if that's indicative now you get the authentic rohati yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. You know, I think I, I operate in seasons very often. And so right now I'm in a season where the book is done. So I'm kind of coming down from the book and it's summer. So you can actually go outside because it's Canada or I'm in Calgary. So it's winter six months of the year. Right. And right. so there's like a different vibe in the summer. I shut down the church for the summer. I um, try to go outside more, climb mountains more. So it's a different row right now than it right. would be. And it's pandemic life. So it's like, I could go outside, but I won't. And so that's kind of the space I'm in right now. Uh, Maybe I'll come back to writing life and podcasting life and pastor life. But right now, I don't know, just like this pandemic is a blur and you're just trying
1: to be. I mean, I would imagine you're probably, if you're in Canada, you're probably going out as much as possible, at least into the mountains or into like doing, you know, all the hiking stuff, because there's really not any other place to go outside, especially in Canada (laughs) during a pandemic. I mean, that
0: depends because we're
1: so vast, right? But I'm on the prairies. And
0: so to situate your listeners, I'm three and a half hours drive north of the Montana border. Okay. And so there is something north of Montana. And it's me uh, east just of me, you there's just nothing, you though <laughs> just and then there's the other couple of folks that you podcasted with, and that's oh, pretty much it. <laughs> west of me is the mountain, so yeah, that's where you would go if you do the outdoorsy. in theory, you would go west and climb a mountain, camp if that's your jam, uh cross the mountains, you then get into b c and and it, it's different everywhere in Canada, but here it's just like i said snow six months of the year right right uh, or eight months and then cold for six and so yeah you make do and pretend like you're living your best life for two and a half months of the year so
1: My parents grew up in South Dakota. I also grew up in South Dakota. And on their honeymoon, they went to Winnipeg, which I thought was really funny when I found out what Winnipeg looks like because it looks exactly like South Dakota. And I'm like, you're going on your honeymoon to, yeah, a different country, but it looks exactly the same as like where you live. I just felt like that's a little (laughs) anticlimactic for your honeymoon. But
0: anyway. Oh, for sure. That's a good joke, though. Like that—that would be funny in Canada too. Going to honeymoon, honeymoon, Winnipeg. in Winnipeg. Yeah, that's actually a a, a TV commercial. It was a national TV commercial about <laughs> tires, car tires, and a guy thought he was going to Hawaii, but he's getting on a plane to Winnipeg. Winnipeg. <laughs> Your parents were
1: in the next aisle. Gosh, I, I love that. Even Canada has like those states, the, those provinces that like. It's yeah. like That oh, that's where you're going. Okay. Yeah. Oh, we, we for sure
0: we do. We we're the um, we're the if it's bad then we're the florida of the north but usually we're the texas of the north so
1: <laughs> love that well like you mentioned before you have been a writer rohati at some point uh and you just recently published when we belong reclaiming christianity on the margins so you're not in the writing space anymore because you've already written the book but now you're kind of in this like let's chat about the book kind of space and i love this book it was yeah. so so incredible Oh, is this cool. your first like published book? Um, I've published, I've self-published three other books. Okay. Or actually
0: I created an imprint, which technically is still self-publishing. And so I have a, an adult coloring book because I am trying to match oh. the adult coloring book craze. And it's beautiful, a beautiful book. And my garage is literally filled with coloring books. I have a little booklet on anti-racism and then a book on church planning because I used to be. I kind of still have maybe, but that was my jam before. So this is the first one with a publishing house
1: other than my own. So Right. So it's not really your first book, but in in some way, shape, or form, kind of a different first book experience. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So what did you learn about yourself while writing When We Belong that maybe you didn't know about yourself before? Maybe something came up in that writing process and you're like, I had no idea I had that in me. (laughs) That's such a good question because I I
0: tend to be very reserved. I'm not an extrovert and I have to stop for a sec because uh i just saw and so your listeners know and you may want to cut this out but you can't but every time mason has taken a drink of bubbly he's putting up this can of bubbly i've never seen before because it's canada and it's coconut something coconut pineapple and it blows my mind every time he takes a drink of this thing that will probably never come to canada i digress
1: i'll i'll I'll
0: send you a, a case if you're really that interested <laughs> no, that's okay you know it's it's forbidden fruit up here um, <laughs> what were you asking? yeah, it's such a good question because I'm reserved I don't share a lot about about myself and now folks get to read about me and my family and my history and it's to the point where like if i Hear from someone or or someone on on social media, and they're like, Oh, hey, so a bunch of great grandma, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Who the hell told you that? (laughs) And it's kind of weird in that sense. And that's where I learned a little bit about myself as well. Uh, The stories of my own family, so my own identity, I've drilled back a little bit. I've only peeled back a couple of the layers, and some of them I knew better than others. Uh, my Japanese side, for example there's a, a documentary about my great grandmother that was out many years ago over a decade now, so I knew a little bit about my Japanese side, but my chinese side less and and my Trinidadian side, which is hails from india less so and and there was just a small process of learning about how each became displaced from their lands, mm. and my Trinidadian side being displaced from India through a story of domestic servitude and so I didn't know that piece about me and it explains like a lot of the inherited traumas yeah Uh, so that was kind of eye-opening some of the other new things were the book wasn't really initially about deconstruction it isn't centered around deconstruction it's centered around belonging which I think is the bigger question right but as I was engaging in some aspects of deconstruction it, it it came to light where I was like, whoa, like this is what I was doing 20 years ago. And of course, all these black and brown voices and theologians and pastors were talking about 50, 60, 100 years ago. Right. But I was doing this stuff 20 years ago when I guess he's still hot for some, but when like Brian McLaren was coming out with his first book. My last episode was Brian McLaren. In fact, I love Brian. There you go. That guy's still rolling. Yeah. And so his book, Generous Orthodoxy, I think. Yeah, it's like 20 years old almost. And that was integral to help shape seminary probably too. So this is the same time I was in seminary to shape and rebuild some pieces that I was rejecting at the time. No words like we never called it deconstruction at that time. It was like you just throw yourself if you're evangelical, you throw yourself in one of these camps of uh, all the E's emergent, emerging. Admissional uh, was in that mix, like right, all these right. other things where you're trying to react from evangelicalism, uh, never the D word, but uh, yeah, so that was like putting together pieces and like, I read Dorita, like, and I totally forgot, because it wasn't really applicable, and I don't remember anything from it, but that was part of the journey. So you don't need to read Dorita in order to engage in your own journey and your own story. But that was cool to kind of link what happened 20 years ago or almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And be like, geez, like, and then it strikes you as you're much older than you think you are, and and then you have an existential crisis, and uh, and the book came. So,
1: No, I think there is something beautiful that for a lot of people who are just now recognizing, oh, there's a problem with evangelicalism, and I may not fit within it anymore, to know that other people throughout the decades and even centuries have been doing the same thing. Like there's something about that where it's like, okay, I'm not alone. And that's like a really beautiful mm-hmm. part. Uh, it, it may feel like you're alone for a moment, but when you recognize that a lot of people are doing it right now, but also people have been doing it for a long time, it's just really, really comforting to know that you're not alone. And I think there's something great about that.
0: It's story. Like it's this whole exvangelical evangelical thing, which is sort of same, same, but different than deconstruction. It's like all these folks just have their story to share with the world. And and to realize you're not alone through the power of your story, that 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 has in itself value and right. it's necessary, I think, moving forward. It's also the the crutch, I think, or it's also the danger in that as you go through deconstruction or as you're particularly if you're white, you're going through a rejection of white evangelicalism. This stuff isn't new. Like black and brown voices have been shouting about the problems in, in, that are inherent in not just white evangelicalism, but a lot of the traditions rooted in, in white hegemony. So, white Euro centered traditions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, we've been talking about this for a very long time. And we ought to appeal to those voices to learn of what they were saying decades, centuries ago to help guide us forward in a good way
1: yeah when you are researching for this book and you really go all in on like lots of different really wonderful things uh really great theology, obviously you're even you know diving into like brene Brown and all of that. When you were doing the research for the book, what did you learn theologically that maybe you didn't know before? You've been in seminary, so and you've been in yeah. this kind of world for a while, so you, you yeah. know a thing or two about theology. Yeah. But was there anything that theologically came up where you were like, I've never explored that before, or I've never thought about that before, or I didn't know that that was a part of this tradition?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Another awesome question. Uh, there's a couple of things. I think in particular... So, from my perspective, in the lands that I'm situated on, I'm on what's called Treaty Seven territory, and there are signers of the Indigenous nations who signed on to Treaty Seven. And every region in Canada would have either a treaty region or their unceded territory. So, I'm in Treaty Seven, and part of my Uh, call to decolonizing Christianity is to appeal to land-based indigenous spirituality. That's unique to your land. Mm. So unique to the voices of the land you're literally situated on. So that's part of my unlearning and relearning and decolonizing the faith. And I think everyone can not necessarily decolonize, but appeal to indigenous spirituality and teachings So the way that land is a factor in reorienting ourselves and at least giving us Mm. a place and space for us to rebuild foundations around belief, that's a crucial aspect. The nuance to that, so that part I've been processing and going through, the nuances uh, in America, there is also, and this is not really a Canadian thing, um, pulling out voices of displaced African Americans who have been displaced from their indigenous lands and have been enslaved and placed onto a new land, and how that has dissociated themselves from identity as well. Mm. And so there's a whole different experience through African American thought. And I use uh, Willie Jennings, Dr. Willie Jennings, mm-hmm. as one of my uh, dialogue partners to talk about the necessity. And importance of land-based theology through an African American lens. So I tried to at least introduce that lens, and also the indigenous lens as well, and land-based theology. So that was a big piece, and took a lot of head wrapping my head around because Christian imagination is not the book is not uh, you know an easy book to read, right. especially yeah. if you're not theologically trained. Like that one's hard, and it took me. And I didn't really sit down to commit to it. It took me over a year to finish. And I finally wow. did I was re- as I was researching. That pales in comparison <laughs> to another book. And so this is uh, the other one to share of Weaver, Denny Weaver, who wrote Nonviolent Atonement, mm-hmm. which is a text from seminary, which I, I guess read because I have it. But I think I like read to finish an assignment and didn't actually absorb because when i returned to it it was like wow like uh, i had missed all of the aspects in his what he would call uh, i think narrative christus victor and just an approach of of uh, atonement and that's one of the things i broach in my book because i think we need to make sense of why jesus died in language that we can articulate without a theology degree and nonviolent atonement or christus victor is the pa- is the pathway, I argue, or aspects of it. So to revisit that and be like, oh my gosh, like look at all the breadth of the traditions around this topic and to be drawn into that notion alongside another theologian named Walter Wink.
1: And so that was... Which, fun fact about him, I don't know if you know this, his son was one of the original members of the Blue Man Group. Like the guys who eventually were on the IBM commercial and yeah. And they're like all blue and they drum around yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Walter Wink's son is, was one of the founding members of that group.
0: How <laughs> uh, and next guest on your podcast. Yeah. Uh, no kidding.
1: <laughs> that's the next
0: one for your, uh, your medium article or something. That's wild. That's a niche audience too. Walter Wink's son. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> so uh what was I saying about Wink? <laughs> so now I just see these, these blue guys bouncing in my head wink was uh i hadn't read wink at all had heard about him and then i started to read him because i was uh connecting the matter of powers so i argue white supremacy is one of the root powers that's messing everything up right. which shouldn't be a surprise but i put some theological uh weight behind it and i read uh wink for the first time and he's been around for a long time and some of the stuff that he was producing and that I was hitting for the first time was blowing my mind. It still is. So yeah, those were some of the aha moments and excellent uh books to pick up around Wink, some of the NT right stuff, but uh Lamb Based Theology, Jennings, uh, and Augustine was another one around uh some of the uh doctrine of discovery stuff too. Yeah. So That's only two chapters. I make the book sound like it's very theological, but I tried to pull it back from that. Right. Those are only like, don't be uh, daunted by
1: all these thick books. I did the work for you. (laughs) That's right. That's right. So, at the beginning of the book, you talk about church impediments that prevent people from belonging. What church impediments have you experienced, and have you, or other church impediments that you know, like other reader, readers have been experiencing, uh, that maybe when you were ta- talking about church impediments, that yeah, also is yeah. a part of it? Uh huh.
0: Well, I'll ask you that. Have you ever experienced an impediment into belonging or some aspect of your belief? or
1: your person that you ran up against within the context of church community. Oh, for me absolutely. I mean, it was one of the yeah, there's so many that I can think of. Uh, one of <laughs> the main ones, I uh, yeah. I don't need to dive into it too much, but like one of the main ones for me was purity culture and starting to f- like sense a disillusionment around that and mm-hmm. recognizing that not only was it purity culture, but that m- whatever questions and doubts i was having about that that i could probably articulate that to my like youth pastor at the time but hmm. the answer i was going to get was going to be like this really simplified answer that wasn't going to actually dive mm-hmm. into it the way mm-hmm. i thought it needed to and so that was like my first like reckon uh awareness around okay maybe i'm in a different place than everyone else is here
0: and it's those moments where you realize that some part of you is seeking to be whole. So let's say it might've been sexuality in this case or the notions around and ideas around sex that the body knows in your, in your, your body, your spirit knows that there's something more full out there and you're reaching for it. And then the church comes down with the hammer. Right. So everyone, I think everyone, unless you are nested into the bed of privilege, has had some moment where some part of them with within yourself goes, that ain't right. Mm. And you've come up against something in the church community and it's evident that ain't right. Now perhaps you need to be alert or raise some awareness around what is producing that, but you, you at least feel some aspect. And so for women in evangelicalism, it's, you can't lead. And so that ain't right. Uh, If you're queer, You can't belong, you can't lead, that ain't right. And so I go through some of these pillars. And initially the book was going to be centered to BIPOC folks, so racialized minorities. So anyone who is running up against white supremacy and being racialized and discriminated against because of their ethnicity or the color of their skin. And so that ain't right, especially in churches which are predominantly segregated, still Mm -hmm. racially segregated. But when I think about the experience of that ain't right moments, it's not just racialized minorities. It's going to be anyone who has a theolo- is theologically dissonant with something. Could be the angry wrath of God, like the blood-filled lust that, that this God, that evangelicals and fundamentalists have painted a picture around. Could be that. Uh, could be aspects of sexuality. Could be aspects of racism. So just name it. The laundry list is long. And I, and I affirm the reader to say, okay, pulling your experience of that ain't right moments. You're right. And you're also not alone. Mm. So how is it then that you can hang on to some aspect of faith yet at the same time, reject in full the things that seek to make you less whole that are in the church, by the way, barriers in the church that seek to make you less whole so most people, or maybe not most, but they walk away. I don't blame them. You, you just walk away because there's no other option. Right. And what I present in the book are the possibilities, the pathways yes. of the options to retain or ultimately reclaim this faith that is actually built first for the people on the margins. Right.
1: And I want to dive into that more. You talk about how new language can help be what creates new belonging for us. And I remember when I first encountered that new language around you know, whether it was like universal salvation or other theologies that I had no idea existed. And then I find the language for it and I'm like, oh my God, my my spirit has been longing for this. Like there was something mm. that my spirit knew to be true. I just didn't have language for it. And then when I first encountered that language, I really described those moments as transformative and liberative. And wow. so what is some of the new language that you learned when you left that toxic Christianity that entered you into this more liberating Christianity? What was that new language? Maybe it was around you know, universal salvation or something about God or Jesus or whatever. But yeah, what was some of that new language that when you encountered it, you were like, wow, this is liberation. This is transformation. This is going to change everything about me. I don't know if I've experienced the fullness of that in terms of liberation,
0: And I also, on the other side, don't know if I fully was engulfed by the clutches of white supremacy or white evangelicalism. Mm. I was always on the periphery. So there was always a problem with me in terms of there isn't a problem with me, but I was never going to be able to live out my full self and also within my gifts, within white evangelicalism.
1: Mm.
0: I didn't necessarily name it as aspects of power at the time, particularly around white supremacy and patriarchy. But I knew that there was something that was preventing me from living out my whole self. So what a lot of folks and particularly white folks do at this point is that they assume that there is only one story or brand of Christianity out there understood through the, through the gaze of their tradition. hmm That Jesus could only be interpreted through, you know, the white evangelical gaze. And that's the only Jesus out there. So I don't know if it was so much language for me, although I'm I'm sure seminary helped challenge some aspects, but it was always a problem of belonging. Mm. I named it as, I used the language mission, in fact, before belonging, that, oh, the church sucks at connecting with people who don't look like it. Don't vote, earn, look. Live and so forth, a church governed by sameness. Like the, it, they're utterly incompetent at connecting into spaces that are diverse for the most part. And so I thought that, oh, let's just fix the theological thinking around that. Of course, that didn't work. <laughs> it would never work. You can't fix thinking and hope that it will somehow guide practice. So the language aspect wasn't it? I think it was the experience aspect that really Mm. pushed and i totally resonate with you and i use the term as well language in my book but um the example i use in terms of oh my god this finally makes sense because i have the language for it uh for example uh what's her name
1: beth allison Barr, is that right biblical womanhood yeah yeah you mentioned her in the book yeah
0: jesus and john wayne
1: uh
0: from dumay so these books you, you spot something that's totally messed up. And then they, these writers come in, these teachers, these professors, they come in and they put language to make sense of the things that we're feeling and thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Oh, and it unlocks. So yeah, that for sure. But I think the experience is critical. And so for me, I use the story of when I went to Ethiopia mm-hmm. and I experienced and touched and felt and was immersed in, a a truly decolonized in fact it's not decolonized because it was never colonized to begin with a a truly um unfettered christianity that's never been touched by western christianity and to realize that god is big enough to uh, roll with 60 million ethiopian orthodox christians had to challenge my assumptions about who god is and so This is really an exercise as you're trying to add language is really an exercise in trying to add experience to help you imagine a world that you never thought possible. And so connecting with people who aren't like you, who don't look like you. So that's a cultural aspect, but we can do that in the big cities around diversity. I think that is a crucial piece to help alert you to the magnitude of different experiences beyond your imagination. And is it possible then that God is in the mix of these different traditions mm-hmm. and cultures and people? Unequivocally, God must, or
1: else the incarnation isn't true. I love that you point out your experience in Ethiopia, um, and you know, talk about, and you also talk about like the. Like diversity of Christian traditions out there and how that has like shaped your thinking around some of this. You go in depth uh, specifically about white supremacy in the middle of the book, and you have this really interesting line uh, where you say, diversity, like true belonging, must be cultivated. Without intent, churches can build diversity on the outside, but the structures inside remain steep in cultural and theological whiteness. And I've said it before, uh, Where basically I'm like, hey, I would actually rather have a church that's 100% white but also committed 100% to anti-white supremacy than a church that's 50% white and 50% black but 0% committed to anti-white supremacy. Uh, And this is not to say that I'm anti-diversity. In fact, I think diversity is necessary. But it is to say that I don't think diversity alone is the cure for anti-white supremacy but is actually like an effect of what happens when a community is committed to anti-white supremacy. So I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts around that? Because I often see that, like, oh, if we just make something more diverse, yeah. then, like, anti- you know, white supremacy will be abolished. And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I don't know if that's exactly the, the way we're, we, we should go about it. Anyway, I'm curious about the thoughts around yeah.
0: that. Any day now, yeah. Uh, that's kind of the challenge of DEI um, and that work of diversity, equity, inclusion. It's like if we just hit the diversity metric, but like what metric? Like that's a moving target. It's dependent on business or culture, whatever they deem, right? So not to say that DEI is useless, but does it usher in the potential for justice? I don't think it does necessarily, but it does check the box of diversity. So (laughs) I was just reflecting on this today because I got a copy of the hardcover of my book and I was reading pieces of it and i was reading a story and i don't know why i'm laughing at my own book <laughs> of homer simpson maybe it's cuz like every book i write has a simpsons reference into it <laughs> so homer simpson uh is invited to, or wants to get into the stone
1: cutters remember this episode are you are you old enough for like simpsons raised you i i was old enough to remember that I was not allowed to watch The Simpsons. Yes, be- okay. Because okay. I, I grew go. up too much in a white evangelicalism where that was just <laughs> yeah, off yeah. the and table. Yeah, yeah, that hit
0: me, like for some reason. So I started that way, and then I don't know what day it happened. My mom switched, and, was, and, and suddenly was just like, well, there's good family values there. <laughs> Homer Simpson loves his family. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but I, I was relentless. And anyway, back to Simpsons. He wants to join the Stonecutters. And he can't, and he is thrown out, and he has this painful childhood memory. And as they go back in time to the memory, all these kids are going up to the treehouse, and the kid at the top is welcoming, Hey, come on in. Yeah, hey, great. We got lots of room coming. And Homer comes up and he goes, Oh, but not you, Homer. And he says, What? It says everyone's allowed. Like, what's going on? And then the kid points to a sign that says, No Homer's Club. Homer's plural. He's like, sorry, Homer, we already have Homer Glumplick here. We can't have two Homers. And so I use that as an example of diversity in that we can have one Asian dude on staff, but Mm. we can't have more than that. You can have one token. You can have just enough before the culture is upset, but we're really not going to take the effort to ultimately find a third way. Uh, So that's a key piece, the third way. What happens when new people come into churches? Let's say the new immigrant family from Nigeria comes into a predominantly white congregation, or a few families even. What do those Nigerians have to do? If they want to belong, they have to assimilate. Mm. What does the congregation not do? The congregation doesn't come alongside and they don't figure out how together as community they can express oneness, not sameness, but oneness, and come with a new third way where all can belong fully and appreciate their own ethnicities and celebrate one another into a new way, which causes the main body to shift in some way. We don't see that. So to go back to your idea of I'd rather be part of an all-white church. So first of all, that's scary to me of being part <laughs> of an all-white church. <laughs> resident of my childhood. But you're right in the sense that I don't think white churches, and remember, most churches are racially segregated, other than the odd token, if that, Mm -hmm. I don't think churches can become diverse. They can work diligently towards anti-racism, but unless, and this is my take, unless a church actually starts without, probably without the shackles of some denomination behind them and the history that it comes with and the baggage... Unless a church starts totally diverse and it's built into the DNA, a church that's all white or all Filipino or whatever is not going to suddenly become diverse. It just would work against cultural ingrained assumptions too much uh, to succeed. So, yeah, anti-racism possible and all should be on the pursuit of some aspect of justice in church community. I think there's success there. -hmm. But to shift onto diversity, we do not have the cultural competency to do that. But I think we can start testing and do better at starting
1: with diverse spaces. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs, whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. One of the questions that I've been kind of navigating, and, I, and, and it came up again when I was reading your book, uh, and so it's something I, I've been wrestling, and I don't know if I have a really a pat answer for it or anything, which is why I want to chat with you about it, is that how do we navigate this commitment that all belong— And But, like, when we say that all belong, that we don't mean, like, fascists and white supremacists. So, like, how do you think we should navigate that commitment of belonging while also rejecting the things that hinder belonging? Like, how do we navigate that? That's a huge question, but I'm just curious, like, some of your initial thoughts around it.
0: Oh, boy. I don't fully know because I'm not a full-time pastor, and so I don't have the spoons. I don't get paid to navigate people who just want to a sit on the fence or be both isms the whole thing right, right. like the, i just don't have the space for that other churches i think would honor the process that it is to guide especially white people uh, white folks through a journey of of figuring out ultimately i think uh, hinging on justice because, as uh, Dr. Parnell West has said, love is what justice looks like in public, or justice is what love looks like in public. So, justice is a critical aspect of the function of the church. And if you have people who are undermining the unbreaking kingdom of God in the midst of neighborhood, city, and beyond, they are anti kingdom. Mm. So, there is a reality that navigating in community, and especially if you're multi ethnic, that it's hard. It's going to be hard. You better know how to navigate conflict well. And I'm not an expert in that. Uh, it's much easier for me to not deal with those aspects. Like I not deal with the freedom convoys, which is a very Canadian thing right now. Not deal with that. Like let the white churches do. You go get your own people, and I will just continue trying to figure out how to love well with this small group here. So it's very hard. Uh, to love well, to engage in conflict well within churches and to cultivate a sense where there might be an expectation of conflict because sameness usually doesn't breed conflict. And if our churches are kind of all the same, then like we we can't even deal properly with sexual abuse, mm. right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like we couldn't even put up some breaks around, around that harm. So dealing with harms is just, oddly not a church quality or a contemporary church quality. Many churches are good at that. And boy, does it take a lot of resource to open the doors. If all belong, like you better have resource ready to care really well for the unhoused who might come Mm -hmm. through. Mm -hmm. Right. So you need a lot of those competencies to help push you forward and to love well. And so you can do so and just operate under the assumption that, man, we're going to fail at this. It's going to be so imperfect. Mm-hmm. And if you can roll with a few faithful and forgiving friends, you, you might stand a chance. You juxtapose that, and which is a good idea to the other notion of, especially for, for churches that are either diverse or um, ethnic churches, that there is such a thing as having healthy boundaries in community. And so I don't know, maybe someone's going to have dialogue and, and listen to both sides with a bunch of clansmen. But I think a healthy boundaries for churches is that you, you have some protection for mm-hmm. um, your folks away from abject harm. And it's kind of easy to figure out who is bringing in harm into the community. So someone can take care of that. I, I don't have the spoons for it. <laughs> I mean, I don't, how would Jesus respond? Right. Right. Uh, the love part. Would he both side is No, I think he right. would be throwing out all the religious leaders first. Right.
1: In fact, I just uh, did an interview uh, like a month or two back with Johnny Rashid who wrote a book yeah, on, yeah. literally called, you know, Jesus takes a side. And so yes. I, I think you're absolutely right. Jesus is gonna is going to take a side when it comes to these things. But also inviting people, uh, you know, that, and I think that's where the all part, the all are belong. But yeah, we're still going to make commitments of what that means for us as a community. At the end of the book, you talk about how instant institutions change slowly, if at all, and but yet, like marginalized people don't have the time to wait yeah. for change, and so. I'm kind of curious. Like in response to that, you one of the options you mentioned to that is that you you think instead of just waiting for institutions to change, you just create something new. And I'm really curious about that. For your context as a pastor, you've you mentioned a little bit uh, about your your work at at the church that you're a pastor at. Uh, You talk about how you then like have just created these new things with your church and and you're creating these things of the kind of world you hope to imagine like the kind of church you hope to um hope to be instead of just like changing from an old institution. So I'm just curious mm-hmm. about like what are some of those specific new things that your church has done that kind of moves us into this more decolonized world this new dec- this decolonized imagination. I'm an ecclesiology nut. I really am always mm-hmm. curious about to see what other churches are up to in mm-hmm. the world and so I'm just kind of curious around that. So anyway,
0: Yeah, I think we need to be open to gather around different ideas and expressions, and that's specific to worship, so services. I'm not sure if the ideas that we have are doing, particularly around church, are new, can't be. I mean, when we look around the world right now, we have, what, the Christian Reform, was it last week? Right. The SBC, I mean, in a little while, the Alliance up in Canada will be meeting. So they're all, all these folks are meeting. Uh, The SBC dropped the ball on sex abuse. CRC doubled down, just like the Vineyard did when, you know, I tell that story in my book on defining and, and affirming the traditional definition of marriage. The Alliance won't even, I don't think, even have that conversation. So what are people on the margins supposed to do, right? Mm. Just wait? No. That's ridiculous. Like, why? Oh, use their energy to try to uh, usher in change? I know some that do. It's exhausting, and you put your body literally on the line for nothing. Oh, sometimes there's change, though. Like, okay, maybe. And God's big enough to change and redeem these institutions. That ink. Incrementally change if they change at all. But why should it take my body as a, as a racialized minority to do that? Like you're going to expend me in order to see some sense of change. Like the, the toll that takes. So that's why I say the freedom on the other side is to walk away from all of that. Don't walk away from the whole, rather reclaim aspects of church that is doing small. So neighborhood network really well. You don't need permission for that. Mm-hmm. You don't need permission to chase your own liberation. You don't need permission to do church with, and all the high church
1: folks are like,
0: their eyes are
1: rolling right now. Uh, that's that's fine with me. I, I'm a big fan of when high <laughs> church people <laughs> yeah. get their eyes rolled. Yeah, I can hear the eyes roll, man. Um, like, you, you
0: don't need these aspects that, that qualify church. Don't need a building, don't need a service, don't need a minister uh, or, or, or an ordained priest, right? Don't need any of that. Now, I'm not someone who would throw everything away, ironically. I, I, I still think you have aspects of, of worship. But my goodness, if it's listening to somebody talk for 30 minutes and singing the same songs from the same three bands week in and week out, 52 weeks a year, like COVID is telling us how many people actually thought that was a good time. Like (laughs) how many folks are coming back, right? And they were already bleeding at the seams. Or it's it's the hymnal and you follow one of three, you know, it's either ABC, the year ABC, and then you roll from there. And there's value there twice a year, right? easter and christmas and it's nice right. but like is that it so some of the expressions and this isn't the d- definition of the church community uh, church as the people some of the expressions that we've done at cypher church are all across the map because i believe listening to somebody talk for 30 minutes and singing the same songs from the same three bands is hella boring like i'm out that's not like i don't find right. life there i am asleep or actually what i Do, and I haven't done this in like decades, is I don't go. There's so much more. And so we tested a lot of that at Cypher Church initially. All this has changed since COVID, of course, but we understand that worship is so much bigger than singing and so much more uh, than a couple of prayers. So we have unlocked aspects of art, could be paint, drawing, of words. Poetry, spoken word, just prayerful reflections and, and, and creating prayers around themes. These are all different. Uh, we never did Sundays, but different gathering times. We would try different expressions, movement, dance. Uh, occasionally we had music. And so all of these attempts were a way to match and meet people where they were in terms of how they expressed and connected spiritually. And some of the results, and I share some in the book, not results is the wrong word, but they were like early church moments that even me as a pastor, someone who went to seminary and blah, 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 I had no frame of reference to situate the incredible moments in community that were happening. Mm. So there was just the attempt at those things, right? We didn't have anything figured out. I'm not going to write a book about how you get, maybe I will of how another church could do these types of things. But the reality is so many people express, connect spiritually. They're longing, they're parched souls waiting for something beyond just standing and listening to a band play and someone talk, 52 weeks a year, man, come on. So that's just the worship side. The community side is always imperfect always broken. I don't know if we're doing it <laughs> well, you know. How can you love well in all of its ways of loving God, loving your neighbor, literally your neighbor, loving the other and then loving yourself? Like evangelicals are taught to hate yourself. Right? You know, love yourself. We don't know how to do that. And then to love one another in the context of community. And sometimes we get the love for one another, um, okay, like the community care aspect for many churches, established churches is there. So that's good. And can we leverage that to love the community well as well, right? So I, I think there's some aspects that are, don't need changing, and they have never changed. But the aspect of reclamation that I call folks into is, is this notion of radical inclusivity. And if we use the table metaphor, and it doesn't have to be a metaphor, it can be literal.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That if we talk about who is gathered around to share a meal, who are the people around that table? And if we take the wedding feast parable that Jesus shares about all the rich people don't show up, but all the poor people do, we have a glimpse, a snapshot of who is actually invited to that Mm. feast. And the inclusivity of who is at that table is wider than our imaginations and wider than what many of us practice. So just the simple act of reclaiming the table and who and the practices of who is around that table. Yeah, try that one out
1: and then worry about all the semantics and the systems after. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How do you hope When We Belong inspires and liberates its readers?
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I hope. (laughs) Uh, How? Uh, Read the book. That's exactly what I want. Mm. I want folks who, and again, I wrote it initially for people who look like me, so who aren't white. And then I realized, Mm. no, like people who are on the margins are being marginalized for either their beliefs or who they are. That's everyone or the possibility for everyone. And I want them to engage into the book and realize A, they're not alone, but B, there are options when you walk back to reclaim Jesus, brown Jesus, the Jesus who is under Roman occupation in the process of being colonized, the Jesus who is calling the church, who is on the margins, critiquing the empire to be radically inclusive, to upturn the tables of religiosity. Like th- these are the places where we can find hopeful possibilities and pathways to reclaim a, a Christian like I'll I'll use that term a Christian in some manner faith and one that exemplifies this middle eastern incarnate christ so all that to say is for those who are trying to either hang on or they're hanging on by a thread know that there are possibilities And that when we're longing to grasp and to open up a fuller sense of ourselves in the pursuit of ultimate belonging and wholeness, that that liberation is out there. Mm. We can grasp it. We can walk into that day by day. And the book is merely one guide to help those who are on the margins press forward into liberation.
1: That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's the thing I loved about your book is... You're offering all these other possibilities for people to still be a part of this tradition in the midst Mm, of all mm -hmm. the problems that it has, in the midst of all the problems that its readers have experienced in it, Mm. that there is other possibilities out there that they can still follow this Jesus that they may still be in love with. And I love that. I I think Mm. that's such an incredibly important possibility to offer people. I'm I'm so happy that uh, you loved it, too. It's beautiful. Uh, Rahadi, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? I mean, come find me on Twitter. I'm not as uh, quippy
0: or hilarious as Mason. Um, (laughs) Did anybody call you M-Dog? No. Okay. You can Um, call me M-Dog if that's what you want. (laughs) No. No, I think someone would tease you. Um, (laughs) I love your tweets, man. I wish... Twitter was like, I was like, I wish Twitter was around when I was in seminary because then like I could drop all these wicked bombs and it's like, oh, no, <laughs> but you just have a way. Like what was the one with the white wines when oceans drop? And oh my gosh, this is hit after hit. You have a gift. So find me on Twitter <laughs> at Rohatty. and then Instagram, Rohati.Nagasar, Rohati.com. Honestly,
1: just Google Rohatty. He's there. It's just me lovely are there not too many other rohatis in the world in indonesia probably but they don't
0: come up in uh, the local google searches except okay. for this one guy and i'm pretty sure he uh tricked the feds so he's in prison so oh okay well
1: that's not this <laughs> not one that's not this Rohatty. yeah don't look yeah. up that the guy the other one
0: yeah no, it should be good. Just Google me. You'll find me. And I'd love to hear from folks who are engaging with the book.
1: That is always so cool. And so I, like, I'll respond to you. Find me. Perfect. And before they are able to respond to you about your book, where can they even get it?
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, so by the time, I don't know when this is coming out, but in America, anywhere, wherever you've got a book, go buy it from your local bookstore, from your independent book retailer. That'd be grand um canada is a hot mess when it comes to books i'm not pleased with what's happening um, in terms of availability for christian books it's uh, book industry is a little bit weird for niche um topics so anyways it's not um available everywhere you probably can buy it on amazon boo um you can <laughs> of course and then back order it with your local independent bookstore retailer but yeah, it's like any book, so you can find it anywhere except Walmart. Boo! Another boo. Is this the capitalist podcast? <laughs>
1: no, I can't imagine. I have too many listeners that would go even go to Walmart. Uh, so like, I, I they're probably like more of a Target audience. So, oh, Target. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's here. being sold at Target, but yeah. Uh, no,
0: I don't think so. But yeah, Target, man. I miss Target. Did not last year. It's like two years gone. Thanks a lot. Thanks, COVID.
1: Well, Rohadi, it's so great to chat with you about the book. I, again, I loved it. It's so great. Uh, and it's Thank definitely you. the book when, you know, occasionally I have people reaching out to me like, hey, I'm, I'm losing my faith. I don't know where to yeah, go yeah. from here this is going to be the book I recommend. Uh, and then I'll also oh, include, you. Hey, I, I did an interview with the guy too. So th- this is, I think the book for, for those folks and it's definitely the world that I, I find myself in. And so I'm, I'm just so grateful that there are people out here who are like, Hey, there's other ways to be in this Christian mm-hmm. community in all of its mess. Uh, and I, I really think the world of that works. So thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about it.
0: You're, you're more than welcome. And thanks for having me. And, uh, I'm here to roll with you through this. it's It's good, man
1: can't be happy all the time back If you'd like to connect with Rohati and Dogwood and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.